Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Well, we're back on the floor of the San Diego Comic-Con, the biggest pop culture fan fest in North America. Um, but today we're at the booth for Fanagraphics, and I'm also here with Gary Groth, uh, publisher of Fanagraphics, publisher and founder of Fanagraphics, and uh, and if I may so, uh, you know, easily one of the most significant American publishers of the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Thanks. Happy to be here. Um, I make that statement because uh, this is Fanagraphics' 40th anniversary year. It is. Uh, um, uh, uh, Fantagraphics actually has been a key publisher in my own development as a comics reader. You guys have published some of the most significant American cartoonists, authors of the last 40 years. Uh, I don't think you're going to disagree with anything I'm saying here. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're saying it. Okay, there you go. I, I'm saying it. Um, I'm going to congratulate you also at the top of this for, uh, I, which I think you had uh, five um, Eisner winners. Four or five. Last night uh, at the Eyes of Snare Ponies. Um, what I'd like to ask you about is just to, to give our listeners maybe a quick bit of background about the history of Fanagraphics and what you do. Okay. Well, we started by publishing uh, the Comics Journal in 1976. Mm-hmm. And the Comics Journal was a, uh, a critical and journalistic magazine about comics the intent of which was to take comics seriously as an art form and to take the business seriously uh, in terms of its, um, uh, of its economic impact on creators and that impact on the history of comics creatively. And what we strove to do with the Comics Journal, it took us two or three years to really find our, our footing, but we, we it was an activist magazine. It was a magazine with a point of view. We did investigative journalism, which was really the first time in the history of the medium that investigative journalism was done in comics. Um, we, we approached comics as a serious form of expression, which had only intermittently and occasionally been done in the past 40 years. This is a very different climate in comics publishing at that time. It's, 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 almost, it's almost hard to convey yeah. how <laughs> different the world was before the Internet, mm. before, uh, before, comics had take, before comics had taken over pop culture in a way. Mm. I mean, comics, comic books were regarded as the lowest form sure. of pop culture. Mm-hmm. It was even lower than television. Yeah. Uh, it was only read by a, a, dec- a, a, a decreasingly small number of children mm-hmm. um, and a handful of fanatics yeah. like myself. <laughs> uh, comic book stores barely existed. They just started in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was, the landscape was entirely different. When we started, I mean, if we told, if we, if we told anybody that we were starting a serious magazine of criticism about comics, everybody would have laughed at it, actually, for doing that. Um, and, and comics was, dom- they were dominated by superhero comics. I mean, there really wasn't they were, they were much dom- else. Yeah, uh, well, you know, 1976, I think, was kind of a turning point uh-huh. in the history of comics because 
Underground Comics. I think it well, was it was the last. That's true. Yeah, I, I'm not thinking about. Excuse me. The go. last gasp of yeah. uh, of uh, of Underground Comics. No pun intended. And um, mainstream comics had hit a new low. Uh, there were no such things as alternative comics at no. that time. No. Uh, and so we entered. You know, we 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 started this magazine at one of the lowest points in comics history. Yeah. Um, in terms of what the forum was doing, there were you know there were there were a handful of underground cartoonists who were still yeah. doing work, but sure. it was moribund. Um, and it was only in the early 1980s when the prospect of a rejuvenation of the forum began, uh, you know, with Raw in 1981, sure. mm-hmm. uh, Our Crumbs Weirdo in 1981, mm-hmm. Love and Rockets we started of publishing course. in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the comics journal served as a kind of rallying call uh, for an attitude about comics that wanted more out of the medium. It wanted to. It wanted to to. to we we practically. I mean, how I look at it is that we practically willed these comics <laughs> into existence. You know, we wanted them and but there but there was no there was no real template. There were there were newspaper strips, sure. Mm-hmm. There were gag cartoons and there and there was all good work done within these genres. There were political cartoons. Uh, and then there were the, the the handful of comics in the history of the meeting, people like Carl Barks and uh, Harvey Kurtzman and John Stanley who were doing mm-hmm. extraordinary work. There were E C comics. But but th- these these were all the exceptions. I yeah. mean most I mean ninety eight percent of the work was just Hack work, yeah. complete mediocrity. Yeah. And what I what I saw, I was being influenced by literature at the time, mm-hmm. by um, filmmaking at the mm-hmm. time. Independent, you know, American independent films sure. were coming up. Uh, foreign films were being imported into America. You know, you could watch those mm-hmm. in uh, repertory theaters. And when I started seeing films by people like Bergman and Antonioni, I, I started realizing that comic could achieve this same level of artistic achievement. And that's what I was championing. Yeah. And that's when, that's why when I got the Hernandez Brothers self-published Love and Rockets, I saw a glimmer of this. I saw this is the kind of comics that I had been wanting to, to see for the last five years of the sure. comics journal's existence. Um, so what's the then, first year you published then? Was that 82? That was or? 82, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, the Hernandez brothers must have sent me their own self-published comic in 1981. Mm-hmm. I uh, reviewed it in the Comics Journal. I gave it a rave review yeah. in the Comics Journal. It was just one of the... It was the freshest comic I had yeah. seen in years. For our listeners who may not know what uh, Love and Rockets is, just, could you describe just briefly the... Yeah, let me the, let, the, the, let, let me let me let me tell you what the early issues okay, were sure, like, and sure. then how it evolved. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the very first issue I got it contained a story by Jaime Hernandez that included two characters named Hopi and Maggie, and they were clearly either gay or bisexual. Sure. Mm-hmm. And their sexuality was integrated seamlessly into this story that had science fiction trappings. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was not didactic, you know. It was not gay comics. It was just part of the yeah the tapestry mm-hmm. of the narrative. Yes. And then um, and then Gilbert in uh, issue three of our Love and Rockets started his Palomar series, mm-hmm. which takes place in a Mexican barrio, a mythical me- Mexican barrio named Palomar, and it's these very naturalistic. Uh, stories with a touch of magic realism in them about his ver- his characters. 
uh, who live in this uh, in this small town of Palomar. And uh, he's been he's been uh, likened to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who he had not yet read at yeah. that time. Uh, so when he was being compared, he didn't know what he was being compared <laughs> to. So he was he, he was strikingly original. Yeah. I mean, comics had not seen anything like the depth of these characterizations. Uh, and then they and then they just got better and better. Yeah. Uh, Jaime threw away the science fiction trappings, and he simply delved into his own uh, community. Uh, of hoppers mm -hmm. and created this cast of characters, uh, and it was, and there, was, and, it, and it completely eschewed the, you know, superheroics, the kind of giganticism of mainstream comics, mm -hmm. the uh, you know the overwrought drawing of a Neil Adams or the mm -hmm. bombastic drawing of a Jack Kirby, um, you know, it was it was all subtle, quiet, dramatic work, um, and. And, and there's and there's really been nothing like it since. I mean, they're they're they're, yeah. they're, they're in a league of their own. There's been a lot of imitators for sure. There's been imitators, <laughs> uh, and there's been people who, who've been inspired by them. Um, but I think they just keep getting better and yeah. better. They're 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 Without they're at the, they're at the top of their game right now, yeah. and they've been doing this yeah. for 34 years. Um, so I think that was a breakthrough um, book. I would uh, say these are the comics that actually brought me back into comics. I read, I arrived in New York in 1981, somewhere in 1982, 83. I read a story in the Village Voice about this comic, Love and Rockets. Oh. Hadn't been to a comic shop in years. It was so bizarre. I, I rent, bought those early issues, and that's what started me. In fact, I discovered the comics and then later started reading the Comics Journal. So, okay. you know, it's. It's a, there's a personal connection in this for me because these are the comics that made me start thinking about comics as a lapsed superhero fan at the time. But right, anyway, go on. Right, right. <laughs> well, so, you know, we started publishing comics almost by accident. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, prior to um, Love and Rockets, we published Jack Jackson's Los Tejanos, ah, which mm -hmm. was his historical graphic yes, novel about mm -hmm. the Mexican-American War. And I, I just sort of... Um, just fell into that because I got to know Jack. I think we published an interview with Jack, uh, who, who was a, a noted underground cartoonist. And I got to know Jack because we interviewed him in the Comics Journal. I, I published a lot of artists because we interviewed them in the Comics Journal. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer, yeah. Ralph Stedman, <laughs> sure. you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of cartoonists I, I was introduced to by, by approaching them to be interviewed in the Comics Journal. And I approached them because I admired and respected mm -hmm. their work. And then it became na a, you know, a natural evolution that I would want to publish their and work. this stuff is so different from anything else that was being done. Yeah, yeah. And then in, uh, I think, 1984, we started publishing Pete Bag. Uh -huh. uh, he mm -hmm. started doing a, um, a quarterly uh, magazine for us called Neat Stuff. Mm -hmm. 1985, we started publishing Dan Klaus, mm -hmm. who did a six-issue yeah. series called Lloyd Llewellyn, yep. which was a uh, humorous pastiche of 1950s um, mm -hmm. culture. Uh, and we were just off and running. Um, in the 1980s, we started publishing the Complete Crumb comics. And what we, what, what, you know, my, my partner, Tim Thompson, mm -hmm. and I, our only criterion was that it be great cartooning. I mean, that's all we were interested in doing. Yeah. Um, so we, pu we pu and, and we published a vast array of it. We published Prince Valiant. We published Popeye. I mean, we published vastly different works. And people would ask us, well, how can you publish Robert Crumb and also publish Prince Valiant? And our answer was that it's all great. It's really great examples stuff. Examples of cartooning. Hey, yeah. Um, and, that, and that was our only goal. And uh, I, mean, that, that, I mean, that was a period, it was the Wild West of 
comics sure. publishing mm-hmm. at that time because uh, you know the business model had not become uh, ossified. Um, people were still trying to become professionals at this. Mm-hmm. They, none of us knew quite what we were doing. That included distributors, retailers, <laughs> and us. Let me jump in and ask this question, only because around the time you're talking, and for me that's the mid-1980s, is my entry into book publishing uh, for Publishers Weekly. And this is a time when I got the notion that the stuff that you were publishing, Raw, um, these are the things that PW, these kinds of comics we needed to cover at Publishers Weekly. Hmm. And And I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past, the role of book distribution uh, for into the book trade for comics publishers at that time, and um, and your own uh, arrangement with Norton eventually. Yes. How how key or how important was that in Fantagraphics overall development? Um, it was essential. I mean, uh, distribution was the bane of my existence mm-hmm. in the '80s and '90s. Uh, in the, we were distributed almost exclusively in the comic book market. And the comic book market was essentially dominated and owned by Marvel and DC Comics. And trying to get our book, you know, there were, I think there might have been 6,000 comic stores at the peak in the 1980s. Those days, yeah. And and this has always been the case where we're, you know, 80% of our books are sold in 20% of the stores. And that's because most of the stores just don't care about our books because they're run by people who primarily, you know, grew up reading Marvel and DC. And that's Mm -hmm. what they love and that's what they want to sell. And I remember beating our heads against the wall trying to get our books into more retail stores. And I was naive at the time. I thought if we only got our books into the stores, they would sell because the quality would be so yes, obvious to everybody yes, yes, would, that, you know, everybody would gravitate all those other to things. Them. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, they would stop selling Batman and Superman yeah. and Spider-Man and they would just sell the good work. Well, a certain confidence um, is, is useful. <laughs> a certain delusion yeah, is right, necessary. Here here. <laughs> Otherwise, we couldn't have done what we did if we actually knew. Yeah, right, was, exactly. You knew it was hopeless. The obstacles yeah, we had yeah, to face. Yeah. Um, and so we were distributed briefly in 1988, I think, by Berkeley Books, who was mm-hmm. an enormous distributor at the time. And that failed miserably. It was, it was, it was, uh, they were interested in distributing these, these newfangled graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And they roped us and First Comics and Kitchen Sink and uh, Warp Graphics, which was ElfQuest, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, into a distribution deal. They thought that if they could achieve some sort of critical mass, they could distribute our books. Mm-hmm. And their... Um, their approach was basically if you throw enough shit against the wall, some of it will stick. Well, almost none of it stuck. So we did that for about two years, uh, got tremendous returns, and that failed. And then in the 1990s, we just burned our way through a litany of distributors. Because I thought, I thought the key was to get us into bookstores. I mean, the comics market was important to us. That was our bread and butter. But we, I, I, I desperately wanted to evangelize on behalf of our authors, our books, and to get them into bookstores and to get them in front of people who are not comic fans per se. This this was my dream. And so we went through a a number of distributors, all of them going out of business, owing us money. I mean, I I didn't understand what was going on. They would would take us on, they would distribute us for a couple of years, and they'd go out of business. Um, And then in, in 2002, uh, we negotiated a deal with W.W. Norton, um, who at that you know at that point, graphic novels were being somewhat recognized, mm-hmm. um, but you know they still had to be persuaded that this was a viable sure. format. Um, 
and uh, and and so we did. We had an advocate there. Um, I made I made a couple of different pitches, and they and they, and they, they took a chance. Mm. They weren't sure what mm. they were getting into. They took a chance, <laughs> and they took us on, and they've done a fabulous job. Yeah. I mean, one, you know, one of my pitches was that they uh, they distributed a number of literary and, and political presses mm -hmm. like um, uh, New Directions. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, and I. And I told them that we were the equivalent of the kinds of presses that they were already mm -hmm. distributing, mm -hmm. but the, we were the comics equivalent, yeah. and they really had to wrap their head around yeah. that. I mean, that, that just that just made no sense on the face yeah. of it at that time. Even yeah. even at that time, even yeah. in two thousand two, uh, that was hard to yeah. swallow. And what was it? Their its impact on the culture at Fanographics, the 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 book trade culture. I mean, did you consider yourself a book trade publisher, or no? I think we eventually did. Um, I mean, I think what it did was uh, we were for the first time competently distributed, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I mean, not only improved our, you know, our, our financial well-being, but it improved our morale. Yes, <laughs> because we had a distributor you who was sleep at night supportive, yeah. <laughs> um, and we were actually getting into bookstores because mm -hmm. uh, because of Norton's reputation uh, when their when their uh, sales reps went out. Um, Buyers at Barnes and Noble and Borders paid attention to them, yeah. uh, and we were finally able to to make inroads yeah. into the into the book trade, and that's that's really the first time when we were widely distributed. Yeah. And then two years later, um, we started publishing Peanuts in two thousand four, ah. yes. And I think that might have kicked us into another realm yeah. because people started paying more attention sure. to us uh, because that that did so very well. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to get to the book because but this is a good over oh, overview yeah. um, and then maybe just talk a little bit about about fanographics today but let's jump quickly to the 40th anniversary volume we told you so um, particularly app uh, uh, title um, what are we going to see in the book and, okay. and what's, it, what's its pub date uh, pub date's in November of this year. Uh, in true fanographics fashion, we're getting into right under the wire, <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> and it's a 700-page oral history of the company. Sounds great. It's got literally hundreds of contributors, um, all of whom have been interviewed about their involvement with fanographics. So it includes, uh, you know, every significant artist that we've worked with, uh, and, and including uh, a number of. Um, uh, you know, of, of other of other figures um, that we that we've interacted with over the years, and we've created an oral history of the company from the time I started publishing fanzines when I was 13 years old, until just recently this year. Um, I mean, there are a number of funny things. I mean, this is this is I wouldn't call it all warts and all, but it's 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 uncensored. Uh, there were things that I considered revelations in the book. There were things that I had, I, I didn't remember that I, I, I've read okay. other people's uh, stories about the company, uh, things that I didn't even know, uh, anecdotes about me that I had mercifully forgotten, <laughs> uh, many, many things I didn't want to remember. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinatingly perspectival uh, in the sense that you have a lot of people commenting on the same thing and offering radically different yes, perspectives. A, a roving very Rashomon-like yeah, yes, experience. Yes. Um, and a little terrifying for yeah, me. Right. Um, okay, what for Fanographics today, how yeah. many books a year 
that you put out? We publish between 80 and 90. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so and it's substantial. If, and if someone was here with us today and walking around uh, your booth here, what, what would they see? What would uh, pick up well, books they, out? Well, they, they, they would see, um, I think, the widest range of cartooning available from any mm -hmm. single publisher. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Yeah, pull something out randomly just to uh, we, mention we, a few we, titles. We published, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, the books I'm looking at right now, for example, sure. we have a collection of Gayon Wilson's mm. cartoons from the late 50s to the early 70s that were originally published mm. in uh, Science Fiction magazine. We have a brand new book by Bob Blackman called Amadeo and Maladeo. Mm. Uh, Blackman is a cartoonist who's been working for um, 60 years now. Um, Mention the book you won a, an Eisner for, the um, Argentine. Uh, eat, or, eat or not, uh, we won uh, we won an award last night mm -hmm. um, for the Eat or Not, which is a book that has a kind of legendary status in the international mm -hmm. comics community. It's a book that was written by uh, an Argentine author by the name of Hector Osterheld and drawn by Francisco Solano Lopez. It was serialized in 1957 and 1958 in Argentina. Uh, us, the book is superficially about a kind of war of the world's invasion mm -hmm. of an alien race, that, that, that the epicenter of which is Buenos Aires. But it took on a wider political metaphorical meaning as opposition to authoritarian and totalitarian governments. And it's established a kind of central place in Argentine culture because of that. Now, I was aware of this book for many, many years because I uh, had worked with uh, Solano Lopez uh, through a, starting in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, we published a number of his books, including his very politically charged book um, uh, called Anna. Uh, and oh, a, yes, and then a yeah, I remember volumes, that book. And then a series of volumes... Um, after that in the 90s and 2000s. So I, so I befriended Solano, and I always wanted to publish the Eternaut, but it was a daunting prospect because there are literally 55,000 yeah. words. It's a, a text-heavy book. It's a very dense book. It's over 300 pages. And um, so finally, uh, a translator by the name of Erica Mina uh, approached me uh, at a convention, and she said, I just translated this book. Now, I'm not entirely sure why she translated the book. It was some sort of academic exercise or something, but she was passionately interested in this book. She translated it, and so I had this translation. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to finally look into getting the rights to this book and see if we can publish it. And um, I proceeded to do that. It was, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's an enormous project, uh, beautifully designed by Tony Young, and um, it's the first time it ever appeared yeah. in English. Yeah, well, I mean, it's appeared in yeah. you know in a dozen languages all over the yeah. uh, the world, but never in English. Um, well, just just a, a few of the books, uh, but you know, I'm going to stop here only because we're we're running out of time. Um, but uh, if you were here, you would really see an incredible outlay array of titles. Um, yeah, Fanographics really has kind of set the standard for really how modern comics publishers should function. Um, uh, Gary, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate it, and thanks so much for being on More to Come. Well, thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers, e Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash 
Comics. Once again, we're on the floor of New, of New York Comics. Uh, I'm, I'm getting confused. I'm getting a little dazed after four, three, two or three days at the San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but I have the great good fortune to be sitting in the Random House booth with Brian Lee O'Malley. And, and I'm sure you know he's the, the author of Scott, the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels. Uh, as, as I recall, a great collaborator on the making of the film, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Um, uh, Brian, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, well, I'm a reporter, but I'm also a fan. <laughs> um, I, you know, I actually wrote the first review of Scott Pilgrim, the first I, I volume. <laughs> uh, I, I I loved it from the very beginning. Um, and I love following it all through. Uh, I got a couple of questions about Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim, and then I'd love to get back. Sure. I mean, I guess the basic one would be, um, is, the, is, is the Scott uh, Pilgrim world done for you now? I don't know if it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it still gets so much love, like, every yeah. every year. It just, it, you know, it doesn't go away. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I feel like, you know, it, it would be, like, disrespectful to just, like, call it over. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of trying to get new stuff off the ground. We'll see what happens. Well, I saw the very first volume of the the colored version, and then I, you know, then I sort of, you know, I loved it, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't really go into it. And, I, and then I've kind of looked back in now, because I think the, the all six volumes They're have all been done. done. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the coloring process, and how did you react to seeing this right. in a whole new light? Yeah, it was actually great for me. Um, you know, well, first of all, we found the right colorist. Like, we, we spent a while, like, auditioning people. Um, and then Nathan Fairbairn from Vancouver uh, is just... He just nailed it. Like, he did it all in one afternoon, his, like, audition, and it was perfect. And, uh, yeah, ever since then, we've kind of been, like, symbiotic entity. Like, he's, he's colored all my stuff ever since. Um, but, yeah, like, seeing those books again, like, ten years later in a whole new light, just I could really see my work in a whole new way. So that was just a really cool experience for me. Um, so tell us a little bit about the new things you're working on. I know Snot Girl is just out. I think the first just issue is out. out. Yeah, the first issue is out. Um, so and it's my first time doing like monthly comic books. So I really, yeah, I'm, I really have no experience yeah. with this. Uh, you know, I'm used to I'm used to like hawking a graphic novel. Yeah. I know how to do that. Um, but single issues. This is my first time at Comic Con with a single issue. And, it's and like, you're just writing this issue. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I co-created with my friend Leslie Hung and. She's the artist, and uh, it's it seems to be getting a pretty good reception. It's it's a little bit of a departure for me. It's a little more girly. It's a little more, um, you know, it's about a fashion blogger, and it's kind of since uh, it's, it's being serialized, I'm kind of going for this like a little bit of a soap opera feeling, like cliffhangers, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. What's the allergy uh, <laughs> angle to well, it? Well, I, I have horrible allergies, and so does my collaborator. So we were just always talking about them, just <laughs> so commiserating. And, uh, and yeah, it just, it just evolved into this story idea about this fashion blogger who has horrible allergies. Um, you're a co-creator. How did uh, you two hook up? Um, we've just been friends for a few years. Yeah. We just I think we met at TCAF in Toronto, um, even though a we, great both, we both show. live in... Uh, I went for the first time. Oh, yeah? I, well, I've been to the second time this year, and I was blown away by TCAF. Yeah, it's great. I mean, yeah. and that, that show's put on by my old roommate, so it's like it's very close to home for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for some reason, we're both living in SoCal. We met at TCAF in Toronto, and then you know, we've been friends ever since. Uh, and yeah, it was, about, it was while I was on tour for Seconds, actually, my last book. Um, we were just chatting online or whatever, and started tossing ideas around and it just it, it eventually became this book it's not girl 
And uh, I now I understand you. Uh, there's a new book deal coming through. I keep with Bantam. And what can you tell us about that? Um, it's uh, it's called Worst World, and it's going to be a trilogy. Uh, and it's set in L.A. and it kind of has like a noirish vibe to it. You know, I'm sort of I've been living in L.A. for about six years, and I'm just kind of starting to understand the city a little bit to be able to say something about it. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's basically like a slightly older, drunker Scott Pilgrim set in L.A. Okay. Yeah. Maybe Scott Pilgrim in uh, another... <laughs> right. In another uh, you'll be drawing or...? That one I'm drawing and writing, yeah, which yeah. is it's taking forever. The, the yeah. older I get, the more... I don't know, the, the harder it gets, it seems, just to, to be confident about what I'm doing. Or yeah. maybe my standards just get higher, but, you know, I'm, just, I'm always pushing myself to do for, go further. I mean, one thing... I noticed about Scott Pilgrim, uh, the arc of your drawing, mm. you know, it, 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 it was engaging and, and, and really antic at the beginning, but it took on different qualities. Uh, does it continue to develop? Um, yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's weird. I can't, I can't draw the same from one yeah. year to the next. Like, it's impossible. I just keep evolving. Um, and yeah, I spent the last year kind of just sketching in sketchbooks for the first time in like a decade probably um, you know I've been doing a lot of digital work but just scribbling all day and just having fun like just getting back to sort of like my I felt like a teenager um, and that was really fun so I've just been developing the ideas for this new thing that way more organically yeah. and you know what we're gonna we're gonna wind up but I am curious uh, just for the fans to know I mean what do you do uh, when you're at a con, I mean, uh, what do I, do? I chase people like me chase you around all day long. Are <laughs> uh, you your signings and interviews? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty wall to wall this year. Uh, you know, just I'm making an effort. I really want to, you know, I want people to, to like Snarkle. I want people to hear about Worst World, and um, it's generally it's pretty. I actually run into people a lot like that just notice me like, and they want to take a picture or whatever. So that that's always fun. Um, but it's so crowded, like it's still easy, yeah. relatively anonymous in this in this environment. And I've, I don't know, I had a really fun time this year, actually. Yeah, okay, good. And, and you know what? I'll wrap it up. I am curious. You know, you're doing um, Snarko with Image. Um, any particular reasons why? Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems to be attracting a lot of right. really terrific yeah, yeah. Uh, creators, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been hearing things for years, and been, you know, they've been sweet talking me for years. So, I, you know, I thought I'd give it a shot. Sure. Yeah, that's about it. Well, uh, I've got the first issue. I haven't read it, so it's in my hotel room. I'm going to go back and check it out. All right. um, uh, but, Brian, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Oh, thanks for having me.